Welcome to Under the Fig Tree Podcast. In today's episode, hosts Reverend Micah Glenn and Reverend Dr. Ben Haupt sit down with a special guest as they meditate under the fig tree. What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of Under the Fig Tree. Uh, how are you, Ben? I'm good. How are you, Micah? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm okay, as as per usual. Uh, you know, we last week we had just a, a two-minute blurb saying we weren't recording because we were both busy with intensives. Right. You're no longer busy with intensive courses, right. teaching them, but I am still in the middle of them. And, it, you know, it's it's all good. It's not like... You know, I'm suffering taking graduate school courses in in every sense. It is a very edifying. Uh, there is some joy in it. But at this point of the two-week intensives when, you know, you've done some pre-work, you've read, you've written some papers, then you begin to come to class and you think you have an idea that you understood what you were reading, and then you realize you didn't know anything. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> uh, you know, it's... I'm 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 a little mind melted at the moment. But. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. It's a, it's it's uh it's all part of the experience. I I'm as we were talking on on the way down down here to the studio. I'm in a much better place because so um, for for professors you you teach this intensive. Then there's this lull because uh, students haven't turned their papers in yet. Yeah, and so um, I'm done teaching, but nobody's turned their papers in yet because and that's my homework. Uh, I got to grade all those things. So nobody's turned their, their papers in yet, except for one really Ambitious outstanding student, and he can wait for his grade. So you call them so wait, I'm out, good. I'm good. Language, right? You call them outstanding. I call them ambitious. <laughs> you can interpret what you think we both mean by that. Uh, well, anyway, we are joined uh, by a guest. Uh, Reverend Dr. Douglas Rutt has joined us in studio today. How are you today? I'm doing, I'm doing well. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Yeah, we we have a um, we have a fan of the podcast. Uh, Doug and I were talking uh, in our our backyard, your old backyard, um, a few days ago when I was out with the dog, and um, Doug was uh, commenting on uh, a, a recent episode that he had seen, and so um, go from from fan to uh, being on the podcast. So welcome and thanks for listening. It's really uh, uh, we know that. The church is listening, and and that it's not just prospective students. That um, there there just aren't that many podcasts out there for uh, the LCMS. So we're we're excited for yeah, to have great. you on. It's great, good stuff. And Doug, we'll ask you more about your your career in a moment. But most recently, uh, you were our provost. I was up and, until around the first of July when I stepped back from that position. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, Dr. Mudge on a while ago now, probably. Yeah. Uh, you know, my the timeline in my brain is all mashed up of, of when things are happening or have happened. Uh, but it, I don't know where I was going with that. See, this is this is what happened. <laughs> Doug was our provost, and now are you fully retired, or are you transitioning into other things as well. No, right now I'm actually still on the faculty as a professor of practical theology, and I'm on sabbatical. Sure. I know it's a tough thing. A lot of people out in the <laughs> world don't don't get it, and they're like, uh, oh, that must be nice, you know. Uh, Mike Lewis, our chief operations officer, told me once he wanted a sabbatical. It's like it doesn't happen for, for him, unfortunately, or fortunately. But anyway, I'm on sabbatical, up, and then uh, that actually does end the end of this month, and then I'll be going into modified service which is like retirement, but doing a little bit of teaching. I'll stay on campus. I mean, not living, but keep my office here and I'll be around. Well, and some people view and use sabbaticals differently. In my experience, every time I talk to a, a professor, somebody that, or, yeah, usually somebody on faculty that's doing a sabbatical, you guys just use it to do different work, work that you wanted to do that you couldn't yeah. do while you were provost or full-time teaching and things like that. So you're probably working. Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm working a lot with the historical Concordia Historical Institute, really kind of helping to do, helping to archive some files as well as do some research on a couple of important figures, to me at least, in uh, 20th century LCMS mission history. Oh, sure. And, yeah. yeah, just trying to make them known a little bit more, probably put together a couple of articles, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. But I think it's been uh, overdue. 
for people to get updated on these two people. One is a man by the name of Henry Now. We don't have to go into it now, but really a very, very important mission figure in the first half of the uh, 20th century. And then uh, Robert Gussick, who was the founder of the mission work, really the pioneer missionary in Central America. So he was more like, kind of like the second half of the, of the 20th century. I think that's so important because, um, you know, Luther uh, said a couple of times, and and the confessions say that, um, you know, prior to Luther, there was this this uh, putting saints up on pedestals, and and it was almost as if, um, you know, they could do no wrong, and they were almost uh, utterly sinless. And Luther rejected that, of course, and rightfully so, because we all know our own sin; it's always before us. And yet, Luther was quite open to um, honoring. Uh, people who have gone before us and and honoring their great work, not just remembering their sins, but also uh, remembering the great work that they did, they did, so that we can imitate their um, their acts of of faith and their acts of service to the church. And um, and it, I've I've learned more and more that it it takes people actively championing uh, the world. The United States would not know who C.S. Lewis is. Um, had not some American writers in the 50s and 60s really started to popularize him. We just kind of take it for granted that everybody knows who C.S. Lewis is. Well, it's the same thing with Robert Gussick or Henry Now. Uh, not many people know about him until Douglas Rutt's yeah, article well. comes out, <laughs> and, then the, and then the next generation champions their, their forebears. And uh, I think this is really important work. Yeah, I think it's important. I think it's important to remember your history you know, um, I'm not like a slave and just living in the past all the time, but by knowing something about the history, you can kinda, it kind of helps keep you on course, I think, as you move forward into the future. And I've always had a, an appreciation for that, for that kind of uh, research and uh, have enjoyed it a lot. And I find inspiration, really, in the stories of a lot of uh, missionaries uh, from years gone by, you know, both the LCMS missionaries as well as others that I've read bi their biographies and to me, it's just uh, just very interesting and helpful and instructive for the future. Well, and for somebody like me, so when I first uh, started to approach the idea of, of graduate school, which you have to have some kind of direction, at least loosely, uh, mine was always kind of, uh, at first, and it hasn't lost its value or its direction, just the extreme focus was on missiology because I was like, well, Whenever I read books, even as a student here on missiology and things like that, a lot of them were by non-Lutherans. And I was like, why aren't we engaged in this conversation? But but it seems like such an important task. And then I encountered you because you came on faculty and staff as I was coming back or just before I came back uh, to as a called worker. But then also with uh, Dr. Kolb, I didn't understand that he's heavily involved in these conversations. But not just from a historical perspective, but because again, what's what's the focus at the time? And then you get reminded through research and things like that. It's like, okay, we do have a good, rich theology of mission in Lutheranism. But then what does it mean? How's it been done? And then what can we learn and grow from and apply in the future and things like that? Uh, so I'm not gonna take that on as a dissertation because well, <laughs> you know, you probably need more space than I would want for a dissertation, but it is a, an aspect of that. But the, the mission of the church is, is critical. I mean, it is kind of what we do day to day between Sunday and Sunday, I would say, mm -hmm. even on a local perspective. Right, right. Well, take us, take us all back to, to where it started. So um, I, I know that you're, uh, you grew up in Minnesota, right? And um, you, you didn't have uh, exactly the the typical preparation for ministry, which is go to, um, back in that day, high school and then junior college and senior college and seminary, um, you had kind of a, a, a unique path. Um, and um, so take to the yeah. skies and take it away. Security, I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting the way God has worked and, um, you know, really led me and led my wife, Deborah, in our family around uh, in the last uh, 40 years or so. But I, uh, when I was in high school, I was really fascinated with aviation. And so I wanted to pursue a career in aviation. I got my private pilot's license when I was a senior in high school. 
We had a, a teacher who was very, uh, very influential with me and mentored me. So I was wanting to really become a professional pilot and trying to figure out how to uh, achieve that and get the additional training. There, nobody in my family had gone to college before. Nobody in my family. So you know, and I think we all know today how much of a leap that is when the first person from a family or an extended family actually does go to college. That's me too. Yeah, yeah. Really? Is it? Yeah. yeah. So we went, so then what I did was um, I enlisted in the Navy knowing that, and had done all the investigation and everything, that I could make use of the GI Bill even, even while I was still in it. So once I was in the Navy for about a year, I started becoming eligible to start using my benefits. And so I was uh, fortunate enough to get stationed First, I joined the Navy because I wanted to see the world, and that comes back uh, probably to later life too, but I wanted to see the world. But then once I got there, I wanted to be stationed as close to home as possible. But and I got what <laughs> year was that? 1972. All right. Yeah. So so things are... Well, the Vietnam War is still, yeah, still, still going on. Still yeah. going on. Yeah. 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 So I ended up in Pensacola, Florida, and uh, was able to go to a local... Well, our base had a flying club that had a a VA approved school. So I just started training and working and I was a jet engine mechanic on a helicopter. That was my training in the Navy. And so during those four years, I just did everything I could to achieve those goals. So when I, when I graduated, I was discharged from the Navy in 1976. I had um, all the kinds of licenses and ratings, including uh, mechanics licenses and so forth that you could imagine and was able to go right to work. So I went, we went back to Minnesota and I worked uh, for a couple of years as a chief pilot and a flight instructor, uh, did a kind of flying they call air taxi, uh, flew for a company for a little bit, and, um, you know, was doing that uh, when Deborah, Deborah's brother was starting seminary. You know, he was different than me. He, he went from, you know, probably when he was 12 years old, wanted to be a pastor. So we came down to visit him and his wife, new wife in Fort Wayne. Deborah and I already had been married a few years and we had a couple of kids and we went to visit him in Fort Wayne and I, I don't know how you know it's it was it's interesting and I still think about this all the time we were I was sitting on their floor in their living room and he had these books you know he was, he'd already been in pre-sem so he had a lot of theological books and um, he had Luther's commentary on Genesis sitting there and so mm -hmm. You know, we were, I don't know what we were doing. I just had some time to kill. So I pulled it out and started reading it, uh, volume one. And I just started thinking, wow, this is, uh, this is significant stuff. This is, this is the most, this is the most significant, this is what life is all about. Mm -hmm. This is really what it's all about. And uh, I didn't understand a lot of it because it's got a lot of Hebrew and things like that in it. And yet I probably read about 20 pages and it just hit me, you know, this would be something that would be so marvelous to be able to dedicate my life to this kind of thing and to studying wow. God's Word and, and uh, sharing God's Word. And so I, you know, when I was driving around town with my brother-in-law, I said, you know, I was kind of thinking about it, going to the seminary. He said, well, if you are thinking about it, you ought to do it. You know, you really ought to. And he, uh, anyway, one thing led to another. That was over a weekend. We drove all the way back up to Minnesota on that Sunday. It's a 12-hour drive. And Monday morning, I went over to Bethany Lutheran College, went into the registrar's office, and asked if there's any way that I could get uh, signed up for the pre-SEM program. And Bethany College had already started two weeks beforehand. Hmm. But they had a great pre-SEM program. And uh, he got me in. He was flexible. He helped me. He took me to all the profs, including the Greek prof. Hmm. So I started Greek two weeks late. And, um, you know, just like that, we made a big change in our direction. And wow. uh, uh, so I continued there and finished my bachelor's degree at, at uh, Mankato State. And then we went on to study at the seminary. Wow, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly, um, well, we know that we have a lot of, um, of prospective students that come from military backgrounds. And uh, I've had a couple of friends uh, that have gotten to, you know, there are a variety of different kind of off-ramps out of the military, and those come at specific times. Um, but but um, I think military people make wonderful 
pastors and students because they they have some self discipline. Uh, they know how to they know how to uh, dedicate and devote themselves to something uh, really important, and um, they they know what the mission mm-hmm. is. They make yeah. they make uh, uh, good students because they right. just do what they're told. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not always, but because well, I've, I've had quite a few military students too. You know, in my teaching experience, so. But they're, yeah, what you say is very true, I think. It's interesting how many guys we even have now, you know, that are ex-military, and they're just, uh, they're just totally dedicated, it seems like, yeah. to what they're doing yeah. here and wanting to, wanting to prepare themselves. And some of them are interested in going into chaplaincy service, which is a wonderful way to serve in the ministry, in my opinion, yeah. and uh, its mission. Um, and others are, uh, you know, not interested in that so much, but they're just, they're, uh, out of the military now, and they want to go become a parish pastor or something else. So, yeah. And and so you you um, you you go to Bethany, um, then you go to seminary, um, and um, it, the story keeps getting more interesting as you go along. So, um, you you were not placed back at a, a local small little congregation in Minnesota. Uh, so tell us a little bit about um, what happens after seminary. Well, we, you know, we had um, my mother when she passed away, which is about 20 years ago, but we have just been moving, and I found these letters again. She had this letter in her nightstand that I wrote to her mm. when we went to seminary, in which I said, you know, we're, don't worry, Mom, we're going to come back to Minnesota. I just want to get a call <laughs> to some. By that time, I'd already done a little help in film, uh, fill-in preaching, you know, reading mm. a sermon mm-hmm. for a pastor who's on vacation and so forth. Uh, in the southern Minnesota area, so I kind of talked like I was going to come back and get a parish out and you know get a squirrel rifle and sit in the front porch and <laughs> whatever just, mother uh, wants just observe the, <laughs> the vida contemplativa. Mm-hmm. But um, Deborah, on the other hand, was always interested in mission work. She, from a, uh, her childhood, she'd been interested. She'd read missionary biographies, mm-hmm. especially Gladys Aldsworth about um, her ministry work or her mission work in China. And so, in fact, when she and I were going to get married, her parents sat her down and said, you know, if you marry that guy, you're going to have to fig- forget about being a missionary. <laughs> I was going to, you know, stick with aviation. And, but um, we, when we got to the seminary, okay, I have to use like a military and aviation analogy here. In my perception, and it may not be 100% true, but in a sense it is in the Navy – if you are the sharpest, you know, guy around and really talented and uh, just really, uh, you know, quick uh, with your reactions and everything, they're going to they're gonna make you a jet fighter pilot, hmm. okay, because that's the top. Uh, and then for those that are maybe a little bit slower in their reactions and everything, they'll maybe put you in as a, um, you know, like a, um, a pilot of a C-134 engine, hmm. you know, uh, cargo plane or something. And then for those who are maybe even a little bit below that <laughs> in aptitude, they'll make them a helicopter pilot. Hmm. Now, I don't want to diss any helicopter pilot. I don't think it's absolutely true, but uh, we knew that to get in as a fighter pilot, you know, you really had to be top of the class. So I kind of thought coming to seminary, I never considered myself top of the class. And I just thought, you know, only the best students the top of the class, the top 2% would even be considered for foreign mission service. So I completely forgot about the idea, hmm. completely put it out of my, you know, I just started thinking these things. I had no reason to think it. But then during our second year, uh, some representatives from the mission board came on a recruiting trip to the seminary and uh, they invited any second year students to come in to sort of this group meeting and with their spouses if they wanted to. And so Deborah and I went into this meeting and the uh, recruiter kind of F, he kind of heard from each one of us our names and everything, and then after we ended up introducing ourselves, he just would ask us point blank, "Are you interested in the vicarage overseas?" Hmm. And I didn't even know that there was such a thing. It, Deborah and I just kind of looked at each other and, yeah, sure, why not? You know. <laughs> so uh, he took down our name and. Uh, then another influential professor was on campus just starting at that time, and that was Dr. Eugene Bunkowski. So he was there really encouraging uh, people to think about, like, overseas mission service. So uh, it, it ended up that we, uh, my vicarage assignment was to Central America, to Guatemala, Central America, yeah. and 
uh, it was just an experience that changed our lives. Wow. I mean, forever, you know, really did. It was great. It was really a great experience and uh, not always, you know, not always fun in every way, but we just, I think for some reason, Deborah and I were just built in such a way that we just really enjoyed the, you know, the learning these new things, learning mm. these new cultures, mm -hmm. uh, learning, learning a new language. We learned Spanish, which Deborah had a little bit of it, but I really didn't. And we had to learn how to really be fluent and preach and teach and everything. And, um, yeah, that was that was an experience. I didn't even want to go back. At the end of my vicarage, I wrote letters back to, uh, you know, to the Sam. Is there any way I can just kind of do some independent studies to finish up my program, and <laughs> we'll just stay in Guatemala seriously? <laughs> Unfortunately, they said no. That's not the way it works. And, and we came back and mm -hmm. had a good fourth year, and then went back. Wow. Yeah. And so then, how long were you in Guatemala as a pastor? Well, we were there a total of eight years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I worked mainly, uh, during Vicarage was more, uh, you know, like um, outreach, evangelism, things like that, church planting. And then when I went back, it was more, it became more um, theological education. Mm. And mm -hmm. uh, because the, the, the church in Guatemala really didn't have a good program for training new pastors. Mm. There was a seminary at one time in uh, Mexico City where a number of uh, men had gone to study, but that was no longer in existence. And so we had to come up with something locally. And uh, I was asked to go back and work on that. And uh, so we started the Centro Luterano de Educación Teológica, which, um, you know, I mean, in a, in a sense, it still exists today. They still kind of follow some of those same things that we put into place then. Wow. That's humbling, um, but but exciting and uh, quite an adventure. Uh, Lots of, uh, I'm sure, lots of things. I've been to Guatemala City. Uh, it's very different from <laughs> St. Louis or Fort Wayne or um, uh, and wonderful, wonderful people, but a very, very different place. Yeah. And it's changed a lot since when we first went there, you know, in 1983. Uh, now, uh, you know, the population is, there was about 6 million, I think, population. And mm -hmm. I think Guatemala today is probably close to 18 or 20 million, yeah. the country. Yeah, yeah, lots And of it's not a there. big territory. It's half the oh, size right. of the state of Minnesota. Wow. Sure, mm -hmm. wow. So, so then at some point, um, you start doing graduate work to, uh, to work on your PhD. And so did some of that s start while you were in Guatemala? Yeah, I, you know, I, I really didn't, I felt inadequate or incapable of, uh, you know, in so many ways of doing mission work. And so... I really started the Ph.D. program in missiology in order to just, I didn't ever think I'd finish it. You know, mm -hmm. I was just taking mm -hmm. classes to pick up what I could that might be helpful to me. And so I started and, and uh, continued to study. I'd come in like a lot of guys are doing, you know, the last week and this week for intensive courses. And uh, it was uh, it was really great and eye-opening and I think very, very, very good for me in terms of kind of having a knowledge of how to do this job and a lot of the things that one needs to learn. But I was involved in theological education and I became interested in the topic of theological formation mm -hmm. and formation, you know, kind of like spiritual formation, but then I kind of started using the terminology theological formation. I'd done a lot of reading and uh, there was a lot of stuff going out in those days uh, on many circles, really talking about what's wrong with theological education, and that mm. we still even hear about some of this today. Sure. Like, it's all the professional model, and um, there's a lot of information, but a lack of formation, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, anyway, I started looking at this and studying it, and somehow hit on uh, something that Luther wrote about um, tentatio, which is like struggle and tension or suffering, and then how that forms a theologian. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a lot and talked a lot about that. I don't know if he wrote that much, but there's just a lot of things that he said about it, like in his uh, different table talks and things like that. Yeah. And so I decided to try to take a look at that and see how how that experience of, of temptatio or, or suffering or struggle, how did that actually uh, form 
pastors into uh, understanding the theology of the cross, mm. uh, the, becoming a theologian of the cross. And so that's, and that was all because I was really still interested in how do we best carry out theological formation in uh, our context of Guatemala, but also later on it became, you know, throughout areas of, of uh, Latin America. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think that uh, the, the, the thing that probably led me in that direction is that we had gone through a pretty tough period ourselves. Mm. And after we went back to Guatemala the second time, so we actually went there three times. The second time, we were there about a year. Uh, my wife, Deborah, got very, very sick with the disease, which eventually was diagnosed as tropical sprue mm -hmm. and just, like, was wasting away. And so the mission board said, you got to go back, got to figure out what's going on here. So we came back to the States. I didn't have a call. Uh, I was waiting for a call, like, to a congregation or something. And I took a job. Uh, I'd worked there before at college, and so there was this apartment complex, and I happened to see in town the uh, maintenance guy there that I knew from before. And he said, well, if you don't have anything to do, I'd need somebody to mow lawns. Mm -hmm. So I, for the, just to have something to do, I mowed lawns like I had done when I was a college student yeah. at this apartment complex. And, and I thought, man, you know, four years, I mean, years of college, four years of seminary, three years on the mission field, and now I'm mowing lawns. Mm. Not that mowing lawns is a bad thing, but, you know, not an honorable well, a lot thing. Of, but a lot it, of school but to mow I'm lawns. Like, it's I'm, not your trajectory, at yeah, least in mine. And, and, and I'm like, <laughs> is this what it mounts to? And, mm. and I've seen so many uh, people have similar experiences since then. And yeah. been, I think yeah. really been able to try to encourage them because they, too, get, there's a period, you know, there's a lull or something happens and they're, kind of waiting to see what happens next. Mm. So through that experience, uh, I've learned that uh, God still works, you know. Wow. And we ended up, uh, I ended up accepting a call to southern Minnesota, and I served at a parish there for three and a half years. It was a great experience. I thought I'd never go back to Latin America again. And yet, one day the mission board people called and said, well, you want to go back? And mm. so we went back. And, uh, yeah, and ever since then, my ministry has been either international missions or a lot of teaching of missiology at the seminary yeah those two things so let's thank you for sharing that um by the way because i i think um both for our prospective students but also for um maybe our our alumni um, there are just those moments in life where you you come up against a real cross um where you, uh, something gets dropped on you and you really wonder um and it it really does um uh, it, it seems like a test. It, it seems like, uh, well, there's all this kind of pressure. That's this mm -hmm. idea of uh, tentatio is kind of like a pressing in. And um, it's not very much fun to go through those experiences. Oh. But, but to hear other Christians talk about them and to know that um, the Lord is faithful in those, that um, there's... there's um, uh, that Jesus draws near to us in in his woundedness and in his crucifixion um, in those times. Um, it's a, a really powerful, powerful It really drives it home, and that's what sharing. Luther says. It's a touchstone, you know. Mm -hmm. or that's the English word that's translated that. You know, he talks about prayer and then meditation, which is studying the Word of God, and then tentatio. And then when it comes to tentatio, he said that's the touchstone, which really treat, uh, teaches you how good and right and true the word of God is wisdom yeah. beyond wisdom, and so uh, I thought, well, let's kind of take a look at that and see if there's any way we can account for that in theological education. And mm -hmm. obviously, we're not going to actually like try to purposely inflict it. <laughs> right, right. Hopefully, the professors <laughs> aren't the some props, Some props. Oh, maybe well, let's not give away too <laughs> many secrets about what happens here. But they, uh, you know, I think that the uh, the uh, the, to just kind of have an understanding of this, even descriptively, and kind of be well prepared about it, yeah. uh, because it's going to happen. You know, some people have it. You know, maybe go through worse struggles than others. Obviously, when you think about our own struggles, they're nothing compared to what you know other people have gone through. But at the time, it was uh, it was pretty excruciating and kind of internally. Yeah. 
Well, it speaks to this reality. That, like, you know, when I, in preparation of coming to seminary, in preparation of becoming a church worker, we, there was always this, this fishbowl analogy that you and your family are going to live in this fishbowl and everybody's going to be looking at you. And you, you, you begin to try to, you know, compartmentalize and categorize things. But then, you know, you go to seminary, you become a pastor, you quickly realize that life uh, as a church worker doesn't happen in a vacuum. That life continues to happen. That you have a wife who could get sick. You yourself can get sick. All of these different things happen, and they can uh, derail things momentarily. They can cause friction. They can create challenges, it, and it just it looks differently for everyone. I talking about your experience, talking about your experience, talking about my experience. People will always try to like uh, relativize it. Like I've never been through anything like that. Well, maybe not the thing that I'm talking about, but I'm sure something has happened in your life that has caused you to struggle. And then what does that mean for you and your, 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 your life in particular, but also your faith formation and then maybe your professional formation as a church worker. And how do you, or how is that experience then going to help you relate to the people that you're called to serve? It all means something and, and it can be, you know, I, I think some people, you know, I think some people are, I mean, it's different for everybody and some people for whatever reason, they don't really have, you know, kind of at least, it doesn't seem like they go through a lot. I've had pastors say to me when I give them presentations on this, they say, I've never really been through any kind of a really, you know, problematic experience. Does that mean I'm not a theologian? Oh. And, and um, you know, I would say, obviously, that doesn't mean you're not a theologian. Uh, I could have said, uh, well, wait and see. <laughs> but uh, I think that it's, it's, it's different for everybody. And I, I admire the guys. You know, I know a lot of guys, students here, you know, young men uh, and women who are already very mature in their faith. You know, it just right, for whatever reason, they just have a wisdom. Uh, and I think in my case, God just had to knock off a few more mm. uh, rough corners, you know, and... Uh, so, but I don't, I just, we've never looked back really, you know, I mean, we've never really looked back after, after giving, you know, the great things we've been able to experience uh, in the ministry. And really, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the feeling of significance that you have when you're in this ministry and you're doing the most important thing that you can do, which is to help people see God's goodness, yeah. you know, in Christ Jesus. And, and to uh, just to have that privilege to me is, is something that uh, you know I would never, I'd never, I never have regretted, and would never want to do it any other way. Wow. <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about missiology. We've had a lot of uh, faculty on to talk about their discipline, and um, I hope that in this podcast, our listeners have been able to start to pick up on a little bit of um, the different things that they might learn at the seminary, different disciplines, different ways of approaching things, systematics and doctrine or Bible and exegesis or practical disciplines. But missiology is, is a really unique and uh, a really interesting discipline. So obviously missiology is the study of mission, but um, tell us a little bit more about what the subject of studying mission mm -hmm. entails. Well, the um, kind of what we'd usually say is missiology is an integrative um, discipline. So it does involve and is based on theology, but it also includes other disciplines that go alongside of it. And so um, typically missiology has included things like history as well as, you know, history of missions as well as even these days some of the social sciences like uh, anthropology, cultural anthropology, ling uh, linguistics certainly, um, communication theory, uh, psychology, any of those things that could include anything that you would do to study the world alongside studying the word. So it's really, your, it's a study of the word, but also a study of the world. And it can, it can include things like, you know, kind of strategic planning, very practical things as well. So it is a kind of discipline that uh, one can really go in a number of different directions and still probably call it missiology. Uh, but it's really about uh, really, you know, being a part of God's mission and how can you best and most faithfully do that. Mm. And what tools are out there that we can make use of to help us understand the world better so that we can uh, kind of hit the mark, you know, 
in a better way mm. with with the message as we uh, speak it. So I think that's you know it's not unlike kind of our th- th- our practical theological framework that we use here in the practical right. department and Osmer, you know, it's a study of really he he has this whole section where you really study. I think what does he call it? Um, he doesn't say secular wisdom, but yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, we 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 sometimes talk about it as first article first wisdom. First article wisdom, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Where the the first article of yeah. the the creed, I believe in God the Father, Maker of heaven and mm-hmm. earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and what can you learn about people? You know, what um, it's like uh, Saint Augustine said, gold from Egypt is still gold. Yeah. So even though yeah. this was gold that was, you know, maybe used for something else or. Uh, in a profane way or whatever, it really is still golden. He was talking about the philosophers, you know, making right. use of the philosophers. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, we kind of still, what can we glean? We can keep what's good and we don't have to swallow everything that we might hear from secular wisdom, but there is a lot, I think, to be learned. And so missiology includes a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, in my case, I would say it was more oriented toward understanding this theology of the you know the theology of the cross mm-hmm. and how does that apply how does that apply to the training of pastors so that was my direction on yeah. that you know in in the 20th century i think people primarily when they thought of mission or when they thought of missiology they thought of guatemala or mexico or uh, if they were in america china yeah. or africa um, that is overseas missions or mission to a very different people, a very different land. Um, so, so should a, a seminary, if you're not uh, particularly thinking, I want to be a, an overseas missionary, um, is missiology at all of any importance to the, the, the pastor that would stay here in the United States? I think you know that I, you know where I'm going with the question, but I, I'm trying to set it up that way. Well, obviously, because there is so much, there's still so much to learn uh, in any context today. And our world is is so different and so changed and changing all the time. Our milieu, you know, the immigration uh, has brought so many people that we're, you know, we're kind of relating with. So to learn about, you know, a lot of, well, what I learned, one of the chief things that I think I learned from missiology and from my experience is you have to approach other people as a learner, mm-hmm. um, not as the person who has all the answers, but really as a learner. And um, and I think that would go for anywhere you could end up, even here. If you end up in a, uh, you know, wherever you go, you really have to start to try to understand what's going on in this place. And I can say for sure, I mean, I grew up in southern Minnesota, but in a town or a city, and I ended up in this literally St. John's in the cornfield, actually two St. John's in the cornfields. And uh, it was a very different culture than what I had grown up with in the Mankato. So we, uh, I really had to put into place a lot of missiological skills there to really try to learn and understand the way these people did things. Uh, out, you know, far away from any major city or town, but they're all, you know, basically agricultural uh, people, farmers and everything. And I, uh, and they all had a long history. You know, they'd been in that area for a hundred years or more, their families, extended families. And so I had to learn a lot. I had to listen a lot. You know, I didn't go right in and say, well, from now on, this is the way we're going to do things, you know. So, uh, so I think there's those kinds of things as well as, you know, the, the increasing number of different, you know, people from different cultures and backgrounds that we even run across anywhere we are here mm-hmm. in the States. That, that's, that's another reason why I think uh, missiology is important. But also just to kind of have those eyes, like you're, you're always thinking about, okay, here I am. God has put us here. This is the congregation. Now what are we going to do about the people who live around us? Uh, I have to think about that with my own kids sometimes. <laughs> they're yeah. in a whole different generation. Yeah. They're they're yeah. doing uh, you know on on different video games and platforms, and I'm trying to um, learn their language and uh, understand what in the world they're talking about because uh, the world changes so yeah. quickly in and, America. And missions has changed because there was a. Like uh, I mentioned, one of my mentors, Gene Benkowski, he was really kind of almost at the very end of the colonial era. Mm. And mission work was, you were sort of like a colonial 
you know, power and people count out to you and all of that. Uh, I went in at a period of time, which was beyond that, where they had started to talk about um, missionary, um, um, uh, what do you call that, when they don't want any more, um, they don't want to take, they had a hiatus of mm. no more missionaries okay. and things like that. Um, and that was kind of in vogue in a lot of places in the 70s and the early 80s. And then um, today, missions uh, has just changed so much because even if you serve somewhere overseas, you're so connected to the whole world. The whole world is mm. so interconnected. Sure. And, um, you know, uh, that's just a different, it's a different experience too. And even keeping your bearings, I think, uh, when you're trying to, let's say, serve maybe in some remote, a little bit more remote or rural place in a foreign country, but... Um, but at the same time, you go home, you can watch cable television, you can go on the internet, you can FaceTime with your parents or whatever. And, and of course, mission board people are communicating with you every day, uh, staff. It's, it's hard to, I think, insert yourself sometimes because of all these other distractions. I think mm -hmm. sometimes it can be a little bit of a problem, but, but it has changed, you know, it has changed. And so... Uh, even if you serve anywhere in the world today, you're going to be connected. You just are, yeah. you know. Yeah, and and we we definitely uh, still the the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod still sends um, missionaries to a variety of countries to Guatemala and um, to to Latin America and to all all across the globe, but but um, missions has also shifted in that it's not from the West to the rest. Um, as they sometimes say in missiology, mm -hmm. but it's now kind of from everywhere to everywhere. Mm -hmm. So you've had a lot of experience where um, the the people, the indigenous folks from a, a variety of different countries have come to America to study under you and to study missiology, mm -hmm. and then they go back to mm -hmm. their own uh to their own place, and and you continue to work with with grad students mm -hmm. here. So, what mm -hmm. what was that experience like working with people from Africa and China and all over the world? It it was uh, it. I'd have to say that my um, ten years or so kind of teaching in the missiology program uh, in Fort Wayne, and we had a lot of international students. About fifty percent of our students were international, but it was really a learning experience because we were in this sort of. Uh, you know, we were always talking over issues, but you had all these people from different parts of the world with each their own experiences, you know, mm. and with their insights sometimes that they would see uh, and be able to articulate that, you know, if it were just a bunch of Westerners sitting around, I don't think we would have gotten it, mm. you know. And so uh, I really found that uh, very, very enriching. And even with our, you know, international students here that I, I haven't really taught recently, any of them I have a, a few years ago. But it's always great to spend some time with them and learn and uh, talk about things and, you know, what's on their mind and how things are going and uh, learn their thoughts on, you know, how to proceed with the proclamation of the gospel in their own place. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really enriching. Again, it's something I've always liked. I've always enjoyed that. Uh, I didn't grow up with a multicultural environment at all, but I've uh, learned to love things that are different talking to people who have a different background, trying, you know, lots of different foods that we would have never eaten if we, you know, hadn't had some of these experiences. So uh, it's it's very enriching to me. To So that could include working here, uh, you know, in the States or anywhere, really. It's just being a learner, really, yeah. and wanting to absorb things. And, and so as you were... Uh, serving in your provost role. Well, you, you, we, we should say you, you also served at Lutheran Hour Ministries as the director of uh, international ministry. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yes. Yeah. And then and then came to the seminary to as as provost. Um, so that's continued on um, in your work. You were you were my uh, direct supervisor, and I met with you weekly. And I would say that the exact same things that you were just talking about of listening and getting to know people and being a curious learner, that, that's kind of how you worked with me, <laughs> was um, trying to, to, to learn a little bit about enrollment. And um, it, it almost, it must just be kind of a, a way of life, yeah. uh, curiosity and um, 
listening well, um, some things that I, I just tremendously appreciated. Yeah, it was it was a learning experience coming here because I had not been a, I knew, you know, many of the faculty members here, and I'd taught a few courses here as an adjunct faculty member, uh, but really kind of becoming a part of the seminary community here in St. Louis was was a learning experience too, but it was very good, and everybody, you know, I, I thought I was always uh, really received very nicely by everybody and very kindly, and uh, then we kind of went through some, you know, difficult times in the sense that the pandemic hit, and, you know, there's just kind of, we just had to pivot and do things differently, but... <laughs> It was it was also a learning experience, without a doubt, and a great privilege for me to be here. Yeah, yeah, there was some tentatio I got, that I got went, to uh, work with three different presidents, which was uh, interesting. And and through and all through COVID, uh, yeah, that yeah. all that transition yeah, happened yeah. through right in the midst of COVID. Um, you're a you're a, a steady hand. <laughs> um, I've I've never flown with you, but I can imagine that. Um, you, you don't get real nervous, um, and uh, no matter how bad the storm is around you, uh, you, just, uh, you just keep at it and you, you land the plane, um, which you obviously have done a couple of times because yeah, you're still here yeah, with us. I'm still here. I'm still here, but I wouldn't, you wouldn't want to go flying with me right now. <laughs> <laughs> because you haven't been I haven't at been, it for yeah, a while. I haven't been, and I'm not getting any younger, really, so... I mean, there are people at my age that are out there flying for sure, sure but sure. Um, no, it's uh, it's something I've always enjoyed. I still enjoy aviation. When you mentioned Lutheran Hour Ministries, so uh, in that role, I was I traveled all around the world. I was gone a lot. I met so many local Christians uh, because Lutheran Hour basically works all with local Christians, mm-hmm. and uh, so I got to work with so many local Christians from many different parts of the world, and that was mm-hmm. a great experience. Uh, and did a lot of flying. I mean, I wasn't piloting. Uh, I, there were a couple of times when they let me in the cockpit, you know, to, <laughs> to uh, sit there and get my picture taken. But that was about it. <laughs> well, that's that's fantastic. This is um, just a lot of a lot of uh, really good stuff, and I, I think the mission, uh, the missionary aspect of your your teaching and the importance of uh, missiology for every student uh, who will go out into the mission field. Anywhere in America, we need pastors yep. and deaconesses uh, that think like missionaries because there's great opportunity to be a missionary right here in St. Louis or yep. wherever else yep. in, in America. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. So um, other questions? Oh, Ben, <laughs> I, I think everybody can see if you're if, if the if you Dale is people are like Ben's hogging me. the conversation. No, no. Oh, well, it was so talking about not this isn't a tentatio. Again, I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me at all uh, that I'm in graduate school classes. But me and Ben on the way in again, the the under the fig tree doesn't exist in a vacuum either. All right. And again, uh, we're we're recording later than we usually do. And I, I've been in class all day, and I woke up at four o'clock this morning to reread things that I didn't understand. A month ago, and uh, you know, guys, today was about Ben <laughs> and Doug. I'm here. I did the introduction. I have a couple right for the pick and leave it on the trees. We always need you for the what's up, what's up, what's up. Because well, if I tried to do that, we, we uh, should everybody do it. Knows. It wouldn't come off. Oh, well, but when people we, would just laugh. When you were asking Doug about the question about the importance of missiology and and pastoral formation, well, my first three years of a uh, uh, being a pastor was in Ferguson. My yeah. the office that I worked from was was ten minute drive from my my parents' house, less than a mile, uh, and it was it was not like an imposter syndrome thing, but a Ferguson was is radically different than when it was when I was growing up there, mm. um, and I didn't live in Ferguson, um, you know, me and my wife Dorothy, we lived in a nice subdivision, so my problems that I was going through in my really nice subdivision weren't the problems of the people that I was serving, and so yeah, I had to listen and learn to people that when I first got there, I was like, I'm from here. I get it. And then I started listening to people. I'm like, you know what? That was going on when I lived here, but I, I, I don't get it. So mm-hmm. let me sit down. Let me learn uh, what people that now now here to serve are going through, uh, what they're experiencing in life, what life is throwing at them. So I can try to be an effective pastor and, and preacher mm-hmm. of the, of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're going to have that in the parish for all, all the different reasons. The, the nations are at our door, but also just because, uh, you know, 
a lot of the people that are around your your congregation building uh, might not have ever experienced the gospel before, even if they grew up in the church. I experienced that a lot. A lot of de-church people who stopped going to church uh, because what they were being taught didn't meet reality, mm-hmm. and and it, their faith never looked like. It, well, it, for them, it looked like God didn't care about them because you know they were hearing, "Well, if you love God." you change your life, your life will be transformed, give your money, God will bless you. They did all these things. They still lived in poverty. They mm-hmm. were still living in sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were still struggling with, with just trying to get by. And then here comes this goofy kid who grew up a few blocks away talking about, you know, God's grace and his love free. And uh, it was it was transformative. And so listening and learning and actually understanding what people are going through, the missionary heart, uh, yeah, it's important. But that that's about all I have to offer today, everybody. Sorry. <laughs> You're rocking it. You're rocking it. Well, let's uh, let's transition to the ripe for the picking or leave it on the tree. And I'll I'll go first. Um, I'm interested. Um, this is one that came from one of our listeners. Um, do you do you take ice cubes in your water? Do you drink do you, do you drink uh, a glass of water with ice or no ice? I have a very strong opinion on this. Of course I do. I, I fail to see the significance of this, but um, <laughs> I could tell as, I as I'm thinking about it. I think most of the time I do not put ice in the water. I yeah. do like cold water, but mm. you, I rarely put ice in it. Uh, you know, and is that did, they talking, didn't they didn't do a lot of ice in in Guatemala? Oh no, you would never drink. Uh, in fact, most things were uh, served a tiempo, they call uh, it, which yeah. means room temperature, even beer. Beer and sodas and things like that, because the cold stuff is, um, you know, they have kind of um, a worldview in which different things like this can really affect you. And so it's hard on the body. To, and it is hard on the body. So, yeah, generally people would not drink, um, uh, you know, things as cold as we do here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, I, so, so, um, so ice in your water you'd kind of go either way. Well, I have um, done it. <laughs> I, I do not like, I do not like ice in my water. Um, and I, and I, I also don't like ice in my whiskey. For, yeah, I, for I knew that. Worse. It doesn't go in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe just a drop Mess of it you know, up. distilled water. Don't get it from the, anyway, <laughs> from the tap. Just to loosen it up a little so bit. So anyway. ice and water, leave it on the tree for me. I'm, I'm a hundred percent. I want it room temperature, a tiempo. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'll take that um, as a, a word of advice. Yeah, that's good. What about you? Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, I'm a little bit like Doug. I was like, well, why does this even matter? But I, I, at, at home, never. I, like we, my kid, well, David, he would disagree with you vehemently. If I get him his cup of water and my it doesn't have ice too. on it, yeah, he's going to have an issue yeah, with me. She but likes cold water? You know, I, I don't know. Like as I've grown up, um, and maybe it's through experience, yeah, it's just, just right from the tap. I don't have it. Like, so when you go to a restaurant, do you say, give me a drink, no ice? Uh, sometimes I do because, okay. because they're going to rip you off by uh, putting a whole even... cup of ice and then you, you get like a <laughs> quart really of... because he's a cheapskate. Yeah, yeah, it all comes out. Yeah, I don't, so that's what I was saying. Like, like at a restaurant. Like Chick-fil-A lemonade. You're going to fill that thing full of ice? I'm, I'm paying for the lemonade, not okay. the ice. Yeah. I, even well, though ice at Chick-fil-A is not bad. Mm-hmm. Well, See, at a restaurant, I wouldn't think to say it, yeah. right? I do get yeah. what you're saying about Chick-fil-A, and you don't put too much ice in a non-refillable drink because of the economics of it. But, yeah, I don't know. I'll leave it on the tree, ice and I'll, just just to throw you a bone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so right for the peak and leave it on the tree. And the aisle of random and mysterious things at Aldi. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I, I it's, have it's, not well, been in an Aldi for a long okay. time. Okay, all right. Well, there's always a seasonal aisle. Mm-hmm. So, so if you haven't been, it's, it's it's leave it on the tree then. It's probably something they have something similar. I think like at Walgreens during. Oh different yeah, yeah. Parts just, of the just yeah. The, the, the yeah, random. I generally things. don't. When I go into a store, I just I know what I'm going for. I yeah. run in and get out as fast as I can. Yeah. That's the military man there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I identify with that a little bit, but uh, you know, every, a little bit of a experience, a little bit of randomness. Dorothy likes it way too much because she comes home with the things mm-hmm. from the aisle of randomness at Aldi. I like to look. I don't. I don't like to take. But 
I appreciate the, the randomness every yeah. once in a while. I, I appreciate the randomness. I get a, I get a couple of Christmas presents in the See? in the um, miscellaneous <laughs> aisle at Aldi, so it'll, it'll be ripe for the picking for me. Is that where you got the delicious Aldi advent calendar that you love so much? Yeah. 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 Did. We did. But you didn't like it anyway. I'm just, anyway. Yeah. The Aldi wine calendar, that's a leave it on the tree <laughs> for me. Um, as people probably know, I'm very picky about my wine, so... Um, all these wine, Eesh. you got to be pretty choosy. All right. Um, ripe for the picking or leave it on the tree, keeping your thermostat uh, below 65 degrees at night in the winter. Mm-hmm. Yes. You That's mandatory, your, yes. Yeah. That's right for the picking. So, what do you, so, so it's right for the mainly picking. Mainly because of my wife. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But whatever yeah, Deborah we keep says. It, we keep it, whatever she says, but we keep it cold at night. Yes. Yeah, she's a wise woman. I totally agree mm-hmm. with her. So mm-hmm. what temp? Uh, well, our, you know, we, her nephew is staying with us. I don't know if you had him in class, his class with you, but um, he, he uh, I'm not sure he's used to it being so cold, so I turned it up a little bit, but usually I turn it on our, where we're living now, to 63. Mm. Yeah, we're 62. But, Yikes, man. Nine, but we live on the second floor, and I think it's a little warmer up there, but yeah. Okay. I, I mean, if yeah, I the, the if, listener that sent this in said um, the, the thermostat below 70 degrees in the winter. I, I can't keep my, my thermo. I couldn't get my house up to 70 <laughs> degrees in uh, the winter, <laughs> these uh, faculty homes. I have a cave mentality when it comes to my house, and the thermostat is fixed at 69 annually. Well, winter, summer, hmm. 69. Dorothy would like it different than me in 69, 80, 68-ish is like the compromise. So I don't want the house to be like 72 in the winter. Yeah. But 60, that's cold. But I, I also, I detest cold weather. So, I mean, right. I, would take, I would take my house. So if, if, if there was a season where HVAC broke, mm, you know, I would I would still prefer it to break in the summer. I'm not gonna lie, as opposed oh. to breaking in the winter. I just couldn't do it. No, yeah, really. I'd have to. Well, anyway, anyway, yeah, yeah, that's leave it on the tree for me. 63. Yeah, I would. <laughs> I, would I just I just know in the future if I ever need somewhere to stay, don't ask the helps. Yep. Don't ask the rats. <laughs> look elsewhere first, and then you know I'm good. Right. Last resort. All right. All right. What's oh, next? Oh, oh. You're you're yeah. up next. Right for the picking or leave it on the tree. Oysters. They're good, yeah. I learned yeah. to eat those when I was in the Navy in Pensacola. Okay. Yep. Uh, uh, so on a half shell. I, I didn't choose a little bit of, of Tabasco sauce and. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Good. I am. Um, I like. I like oysters. Um, when we were in when we were in Boca, um, man, you could you could get solid oysters, really good, fresh. So yeah, it's sure. right for the picking for me. It's it's the texture for me. Uh, it's just leave it on the tree for me. I, so I, I I've eaten, I like I'm. I'll always revisit a food that I say I don't like, and I keep doing this with mushrooms. Uh, they're just gross, but I, I've had some like fried, and I've had some like grilled, which I guess probably is cheating a little bit. But that texture mm-hmm. of a raw oyster, I just. Mm-hmm. It's it's about the taste, and they there's yeah. really if you go to a really good oyster place. They can tell you what your oyster is going to taste like, and it's like wine. Uh, you really can taste um, <laughs> the the differences in in oysters. I'll take your word. I, I can't get past the texture. I don't know what they taste like. I just know the texture is awful. So so I'll I'll flip this one. Um, we'll go from oysters to White Castle. <laughs> what do you think about White Castle? Ripe for the picking or leave it on the tree? White would, Castle I say, slider. I would say leave it on the tree. I don't really have anything against it. I just very rarely have have gone there. It just doesn't occur to me. Although I go by it, there's one here on Big Bend, and there's cars lined up there all the time, you know, but uh, it just doesn't. It might be the same thing, the texture. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's an absolute leave yeah, it on the tree uh, for me. I find yeah. White Castle vile. Uh, I, I think I've had White Castle one time, mm. and I thought probably that was one one time too many. Yeah. <laughs> okay. well, I mean, disgusting. It's, it's right for the picker for me. Oh, I, I love White Castle. Man. <laughs> man. So we You're going to feel have... bad after you eat White Castle. Well, I, I don't feel great, but I don't feel terrible. We, we, just, uh, we have an exchange student when... We got a crave case. She didn't listen. She's asked about it again. So, but she also likes Panda Express. Well, anyway, I yeah, White Castle. It's not like I'm 
thinking to myself, hmm, when's the last time I had White Castle? I need to get it again. But on the occasion, if I'm out and about and I'm like, I'm hungry, I'm going to stop somewhere and I pass one before I pass something else. I'd I'm, stay I, hungry. I'd, I'd, I'd stop and get some. <laughs> yeah, hey, get like, you know, a four pack cheeseburgers, crinkle cut fries, <laughs> ice cold Coke. I'll probably get some chicken rings too. I'll probably, I'm like, that's one of those places where you order like volume. Ooh. And it yeah, it hits every time, man. Always satisfied. Yeah. All right. All right. This is this is our, our last one. Hey, we've been all over the place with this. Hey, we're we're usually not this divided, but I appreciate it. Right for the picking or leave it on the tree ebooks. You mean like have I ever read one? Oh, it's just, it's just, it, well, yeah. You prefer I, them. I think I know your question. I don't know if I would prefer them, but I use them quite a bit, yeah. I use them quite a bit, although I, it's there's still something about having, you know, the tactile thing of having an actual book. And the other thing is if it's something you want to kind of page around in, it's so much easier in the book. You know, you can stick a little piece of paper in there. I know there's tools to do that on the ebook, but it just doesn't seem natural to me. You, know, you can you can bookmark a page and things like that. So I think uh, I think uh, it's better to have a, a printed book in hand, uh, especially if you're really studying something, you know, uh, theo theological textbook or something to me. Uh, I was at visiting Grand Canyon University last spring, and all their, that's all they have is e-books. That's yeah. all they have. Yeah. And I, maybe it's a generational thing, but I still prefer having a, a book in my hand that I can page through. I can flip back a couple pages real easily without feeling like I'm getting lost. That's my opinion. I, I'm, I'm kind of a leave it on the tree as well. I mean, I use eBooks all the time and especially if I can get an, a book um, and I just need to read a little bit of something, especially if I can get it for free, that's fine. But the problem that I have with eBooks is the platform just seems to continually change. Um, so there's Kindle, sure, but I I have eBooks that you can't access anymore because oh. it was the wrong platform, um, and I I think we're still too early in the tech space, and they haven't figured out why eBooks should exist. Um, I'm I'm good with them eventually, but you know I'm, I'm picky about. Them, well, I don't so. like the light shining in my face for one thing. Oh, so yeah. I remember we had a Kindle, and it was very light also. That was, you know, you remember those? It was just like matte, that. right? Yeah, it was matte, and the and it was um, I forget what they called the technology, but it didn't shine in your face. Mm -hmm. But uh, reading like uh, out of a out of a off of an iPad or something at bedtime is just kind of keeps you awake, you yep. know. And it's jarring. Yeah. yeah. I so last spring into the summer, I uh, because I, I travel for work and I I have logos and it's convenient to have that kind of massive library at your disposal everywhere you go he's logos on my mm -hmm. phone i can pull things up so i was like you know what i'm gonna try uh to do everything on ebook uh and there were some exceptions where i couldn't buy them and it, it was miserable i'm not mm -hmm. gonna lie and some of the books for all the reasons that you said some of the books that i purchased on ebook i've now repurchased physically because i know i'm gonna want to use them for my dissertation and things like that so yeah. it's like i might as well just get the mm -hmm. book for because again it's it, there's a convenience aspect to it, and I, it's not like I don't understand the technology and, you know, even flipping back and forth and bookmarking, highlighting and things like that, being able to highlight in different colors and not having to have all that stuff at your disposal. But you just, there's, it's just, we, there's just something about a book, the feel of it, the smell of it, the, and more importantly, the, the look of it. Right. I, I make my ebook sepia, big print, small, it just nothing quite yep. makes it feel that I'm, doing the thing that I'm, I'm meant to do so wow yeah, across the board we're all agreed on leave that. it on the tree we just need books recycle paper we'll find a way to keep it economical mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. yeah anyway what do you think um i think we should uh land on our final question which is um if you had any final advice for somebody that's thinking about seminary considering potentially studying to be a deaconess or to study for the uh pastoral ministry what what advice would you give I would probably say something like, I, I think I've already talked about this a little bit, but just the opportunity to do something uh, very significant with your life, I think, is mm. is is uh, one of the things that was very attractive to me. And also, 
you know, the way God can lead you and the adventures that you're going to be on and the things that you're going to learn, I think uh, just fasten your seatbelt is what I would mm. say, you know, because uh, it's, uh, you know, Paul talked about it in Second Corinthians. I'm sorry, yeah, Second Corinthians. He talked about being dragged around in triumphal procession. Mm. And dragged around in triumphal procession doesn't mean that he was like a part of this triumphal parade, that he was a, a, a victor, but rather he was being dragged around by Christ in this triumphal procession, you know, as a ca someone who'd been taken captive. It sounds kind of bad, but at the same time, I think it's really, uh, it's just, it, it's just wondrous. Mm -hmm. It's wondrous. Yeah. yeah. The twists and turns and all of that, you know, don't, uh, and I think just the uh, opportunity to meet so many people, even, you know, when I was in the parish in, in Minnesota, I dealt with and worked through uh, things with so many people that you know, struggles that they had. And that was, you know, always just uh, gratifying in a sense. It's sometimes hard, but also gratifying to to be uh, working with people, ministering to them, and sometimes years later finding out that they were so grateful mm -hmm. for your ministry that you extended to them at that time. You know, wow. yeah. Thank you. This would be it. Ministry is an adventure. <laughs> Get ready Absolutely for it. Is. Uh, well, thank you, Doug, uh, for joining us uh, today on Under the Fig Tree. And I, I want to echo something that Ben said, because uh, when I became the director of recruitment, you were the provost. And, uh, you know, a missiological heart has a, a fingerprint, I think, on everything that we do today in the enrollment department of our desire to go and uh, listen to prospective students, to learn from them of, w of what we can be doing, what we how we should be communicating and, and connecting with people and then bringing them here to be formed and all the other stuff. And so uh, thank you for your service in many different ways in the Navy as our provost and your ongoing uh, contributions to the church. And again, today on our podcast, Under the Fig Tree, uh, if you yourself are listening today uh, and you're thinking about being a church worker yourself or the, the thought is kind of molded around in your head a little bit, make sure to reach out to us on our website, fill out a request for information and somebody from our department will reach out to you uh, and begin that conversation. Or if you are looking around your context or congregation and there's somebody in your congregation that you think might be a good church worker, uh, don't just think about it. Make sure to tell them, uh, share Under the Fig Tree uh, with them. Uh, and as always, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time under the fig tree.